You are listening to Signal to Noise on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, proudly brought to you by our amazing sponsors. The new Allen & Heath CQ Series, a trio of compact digital mixers for musicians and bands, audio engineers, home producers, small venues, and AV installers, places ease of use and speed of setup at the heart of the user experience. RCF, who will be featuring their new TT Plus audio brand, including the high-performance GTX series line arrays and the GTS 29 sub, at the upcoming LSI loudspeaker demo at the CFX show in Dallas this October. Come by and check it out. Attendance is free. Rational Acoustics, manufacturers of Smart, the industry-leading acoustical test and measurement software platform. Rational Acoustics, rational people, smart products. I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be to Signal to Noise on the ProSound Web Podcast Network. I'm your host, Katie Karch, and with me are my two co-hosts, Andy Levis. And no stranger to anybody who's been listening to the podcast at all. I think he now has the record for the most times as a guest. He's also recently inspired an unofficial drinking game in the Discord, the one, the only, Ryan John. <laughs> what, what is this drinking game? I've heard this before, but how is there a drinking game that I've inspired? Any, any, anytime anybody in the Discord says, well, Ryan has a trick for, or oh, Ryan God. suggested, <laughs> you got to drink. I'm going to end up with brain damage. Yep. Yeah. Drain damage. He wasted it in an exactly. hour. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've got Ryan here as guest hosting, which I'll, I'll explain specifically why I kind of wanted to seek out Ryan to join us on this. And our guest today is an old friend of mine. Uh, those of you who come to Signal noise through the lab side of ProSoundWeb will probably know him, uh, Andy Peters, who has had a really interesting and varied career. He is a deep, deep part of indie punk rock history as the longtime house sound engineer for Maxwell's, the famous, infamous club. Uh, famous. In, uh, yeah, the, the famous uh, uh, punk and indie club in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, from there, he's been the longtime uh, front of house for the Feelies uh, through their whole uh, later life reunion. Uh, he's worked with Fred Schneider, the B-52s, um, but he's also had a career in uh, hardware and electronics design, uh, both outside the industry and lots of, well, is it fair to paraphrase it as astronomy and scientific instrumentation? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and also inside the industry with a, a, a brief stint at Ensonic many, many years ago. And those of you who are familiar with the Smart I.O., uh, the USB interface uh, that Rational Acoustics sold for years, Andy's the guy who designed that. Um, and so with Ryan's background, both as, as a mixer and on the hardware and product design side, I as soon as Andy agreed to do the podcast, I reached out to Ryan to ask if he'd want to tag in and uh, join us. So... Here we are. Um, why don't to get it started? Why don't we do the do the little uh, traditional icebreaker and uh, go around? And what's the coolest thing you got on arm's reach? What about you, Katie? I have I have this um, rubber duck, it's small and yellow, and it is uh, giving you the bird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Andy gave this to me. Uh, Andy Levis gave this to me uh, when we did a gig together in Seattle a few months ago, and I. It's been one of my little like board mascots. I had it set up on my record table. Uh, uh, 
I've I've started giving those to a lot of folks, and I'm I'm getting a photo album of folks sending me pictures of them on racks and consoles everywhere. Uh, what about you, Andy? Uh, I I think you went to go grab something. <laughs> I went to grab something. I'll show it to you when nobody can see this, but it's uh, the new uh, Sonic Youth live record, uh, their last show, um, recorded by Aaron Mullen. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Sonic Youth. You may be I'm not. Okay, uh, they were extraordinary live band. They were unbelievable. And so I first started seeing them in like 1985 or so, 84. And they played Little Maxwell's. And so I, I found a picture that I took of them back then. And it was like, I said, drum overheads and stuff. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Terry Pearson was recording the show anyway. And he said, I don't remember. Because <laughs> why would he? It was like, you know, 100 years ago. But um, so, and the reason for the Sonic Youth record is because Sonic Youth is the reason the Feelies got back together. And we can talk about that uh, a little bit later. But yes, Sonic Youth live in Brooklyn 2011, their last American show. And then I guess they played a couple shows down in South America for contractual reasons. But they were done, uh, as you all know. Anyway. So what about you, Ryan? What you got? Um, weirdly, I have this little plug-in controller for the TC Electronics TC2290 uh, you know, delay, right? You know, the 2290 is a great piece of hardware, right? Mm -hmm. But TC Electronics made these tiny little controller things that could run a plug-in. They were like a hundred bucks. So it's like, why not? Um, I bought this probably three and a half years ago. I've never installed the plugin. So this just sits on the desk and it's just got cool buttons. And I feel personally is, is attacked a USB by this relatable content. There's plenty of stuff in here. It's a hundred dollar fidget toy. Right. It is exactly a fidget toy, but it also just <laughs> kind of reminds me of what a 2290 looks like. They're cool, physical looking things with the little keypad on it. Like, I, I, I like them. Yeah, nice. I literally went down, a, I was going down a deep dive of like TC plugins and emulations recently and, and saw that. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I don't need to spend money on that, but I want to. Yeah, well, well, if you did spend money on it, it'll probably do exactly what this one does, which is just, it's it's actually a literal paperweight. It is holding down papers on this desk. <laughs> but it's so, cool. So but it's I, awesome. I, yeah. yeah. I love it. And then I guess my turn, I've got a, I just got an eBay find of poking it that I feel like Ryan will appreciate because it's funny in our little pre-talk with Andy while we were waiting for Ryan to come on, it's pretty much come up that the Bear M201 is the now the unofficial official mic of Signal Noise because it also came up in last week's episode. But I just got <laughs> off eBay an M420. And, oh, nice. Uh, which is the Love little it. baby. It's a little, like, it basically looks like a, a cutoff uh, 201. It's It's got a little less low end and a little bit more of a peak on the high end. But I'm going to I'm gonna give that a try out on hi-hat next chance I get. Very nice. Because nice. it's the least important input, right? <laughs> Except in a reggae band where the hi-hat is the most important input except for the bass because they I, say, keep I come time from a from musical the theater background too, so it's often the most input. It's like that's what's <laughs> given that that drive to the dancers a lot. It's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I find that in musical theater, like monitoring where we're very particular about what does or doesn't go into the fold back on stage for musicians, it's it's what gives them the tempo, what gives them what they need for choreography, and what gives them the pitch and more often than not, there's a lot more hi-hat than you'd think. <laughs> I've seen the same thing in Hindu temple dance. Um, I've done a lot of uh, things uh, for 
Hindu temple dance exhibitions, and they have one of the musicians, their whole job is to just sit there and play finger cymbals to keep the dancers <laughs> in time. And they they dance for four hours at a time, so it just that sound <laughs> rings in your head for days afterwards. But yeah, that's a, that's a good trick to it? keep keep time. Was it a Peter Gabriel album that, that he brought Stuart Copeland in just to play hi-hat? I'm trying to remember which song it was. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. Right. Speaking of hi-hats, you can think of two drummers who are great on the hi-hat. One is Buddy Rich, that mm-hmm. Greek version of Weather Report's um, um, Birdland. And Billy Ficka from television is the master of the hi-hat. Just to say this. Yeah, and and uh, Google to the rescue. It was, it was Red Rain, the Peter Gabriel yeah. song right, that right, Stuart right. Copeland plays hi hat and only hi hat on. And hi hat is very prominent in that mix. Yep, there's a lot of hi hat in that mix. <laughs> I'm going to pay Stuart Copeland to come in and play hi hat. You're gonna you're gonna bump that fader up a bit. Yep. Is nice. it channel one on the tape or what? <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Nice. So, Andy uh, Peters, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really excited to get to know you. Um, Andy Lovins has been so excited to talk to you. Uh, I read your resume earlier, and I squealed like a little, little girl um, at some of the names on it. And I was wondering how, if you would talk about how did you get into doing this? And um, and were, was the, were the musicians part of that? Like, was the music part of that drive? Well, the the music was definitely part of it, and part of it is that when I was at Stevens in Hoboken, getting my undergraduate, there is a rock club up the street called Maxwell's, and Maxwell's was sort of like the island of misfit toys, so it had this odd reputation of being like, you know, slightly like a gay club because the owner was gay, but it really wasn't, but it had this reputation, so what happened was all the jocks stayed away, and it became like a safe space, and it was something like, you know, safe space before the term was even invented, and um, so a lot of the meets hung out there, but there were shows going on. There were great rock punk shows, indie rock shows, you name it, you know, Steve was booking it there, and when I was at Stevens, I was always taking my camera to the club to take pictures of the bands, and um... After I graduated and started working at the local defense contractor, I was still going to Maxwell's and hanging out, and I was there with an old friend named Jim Testa, who does a uh, fanzine called Jersey Beat. He's been doing this for since 1982. Uh, that's how long. So I was at a show with Jim, and I said, you know, this sounds pretty bad. And he said, oh, well, you know, that does. And I said, I can do a better job. And he's like, yeah, so go tell Steve, and meaning Steve Fallon, the owner. And I said, okay. And with the most gumption I've ever, chutzpah I've ever had, I went to Steve and said, hey, you need a sound guy. I can, you know, cover Thursdays or whatever, you know, because we only had shows Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays generally, so it wasn't too bad. And he said, sure, you come in on Thursday, a guy will help you train and learn. Now, Steve did not ask me if I knew anything about doing sound. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I went there on the Thursday. I was about to ask you that. Like, was this I, when you started? <laughs> right, so right, right. question too. So, yeah. So, um, the, the, the answer is that there was a little, um, PA for the jazz band at Stevens, but I played with it once, like a Yamaha, couple of Yamaha boxes and a little mixer, but that was it. Right. And so I showed up on the Thursday and the guy, regular guy was like, okay, here's how you coil cables. Here's how you set up microphones. Here's how you do this, blah, blah, blah. And that was easy enough and you know it went and it went and then so did a couple more and then he was like okay now you you know you figured out how to set the input gain how to set monitor levels how to do all this and it was a very simple pa at maxwell's at the time it was an ev tapco 12 
and had a knob for the volume control, if you remember these things. And someone had calibrated the knob, and the knob was calibrated loud, louder, loudest, and Das Damen. And now Das Damen were a Hoboken band who were excruciatingly loud on stage. <laughs> and they were also great. I mean, you know, they were totally great. So anyway, um, after, you know, he started saying, okay, you can mix the opening band on Thursday, blah, blah, blah. And then it got to the point where he was comfortable with me doing it. And I pick up things pretty quickly. So that was part of it. Um, and it wasn't much to pick up either. I mean, it was very simple. And one day we had a band come in and for some reason the guy was like i have other things to do today you can handle this i'm leaving and he left <laughs> he leaves like okay and then the band comes in and then he introduced him it was the i remember the headlining band was a band called flower from minneapolis f-l-o-u-r guy named pete conway was the bass player leader or guitar player leader he was in rifle sport he was a couple of their bands and the middle band on the bill was the jesus lizard and i don't remember the first band on the bill but anyway so i band come in and I talk to them, say, hello, hi, I'm Andy, I'm the sound guy. And band introduced like, hey, I'm, you know, Pete, the guitar player. Hi, I'm Steve, the bass player, blah, blah, blah. And they were sharing backline with the Jesus Lizards, so that really actually helped. So, you know, same drum kit, same bass, same, same guitar. Always does. You, you love that stuff, right? Especially at Maxwell's where you had no room to put anything, right? So anyway, uh, we're going along, we do sound check, and it's fine. It's working, you know. And then the Jesus Lizard come on, they do their sound check, and then the first band comes on. And then in the break, after we open the doors, um, my friend John, Big John Reinert, comes in, and he's a regular at Maxwell's. He was, if you've seen pictures of him, he's a guy with a baseball hat, a flannel shirt, long hair, one of the original grunge guys before grunge was grunge. And lovely guy, may he rest in peace, he passed a few years ago. Um, anyway, so John comes up to me and says, so what's it like working with Steve Albini? And I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Oh, the bespectacled guy playing bass. That's Steve Albini. Holy moly. <laughs> and, you know, Amazing. And um, here's the thing. I saw Big Black and I saw Rape Man and Rape, you know, and I should have known what he looked like, but it just didn't put it together. Anyway, so it was great. Steve was fine. He was, you know, didn't know I didn't nearly know what I was doing and I was greener than, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, it went great. And I told him, I told John that and I said, he's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Cause you know, everybody heard the stories, but you know, actually Steve was always just fine. He's got a public persona and he's got his Steve, you know, uh, cause when you're working with a, when you're working to do a show, you can't be that person. I think everybody knows that. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the show starts and the Jesus lizard come on and, um, I stand on my stool to see over the crowd. And then if you've seen the Jesus Lizard back then or you knew about them, you know what they would do. And at some point, um, David Yao, the lead singer, unzips his pants and pulls little David out. And little David's talking into the microphone. And I'm standing on the stool back there and I'm like thinking, this is what I need to do. This is this is what I need to do. This is amazing. And uh, again, the Jesus Lizard back then were just like the most amazing rock band you could possibly see. And uh, that was, that went well. And then a uh, couple weeks later, I ended up having gallstones. I had a gallbladder attack. It was really weird. How can you be 23 years old and have gallstones? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so I was out for a month, the month of like the end of October to the middle of November, end of November, around Thanksgiving time. And 
came back to Hoboken, came back to Maxwell's for a Mekons show. And that was when somebody threw a brick through the back window. That was <laughs> exciting. And then Steve says, hey, you know, I, I need you. I need you more than, you know, whatever. Um, and so I'm okay. And then he says, I'll set you up with, you know, somebody to help you out and get you going and then turn the keys over to you. And so he set me up with Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango. Yola Tango was, of course, is still, of course, like Hoboken's main export band at this point. And I'd known Ira since probably 1985, 1984, whatever, because there was a whole group of Hoboken musicians and rock writers and people who hung out and played softball on the weekend down in one of the fields that's now probably condos. And so I knew Ira, I knew Georgia, you know, all, the, all those people. And so... Ira comes in and we're talking, we do the whole thing and he shows me, he's in, he says something, he'll, t- he'll tell you this. He says, I taught you everything I know about live sound. <clears throat> and so, you know, I remember Ira telling me the story, but he's trying to do live sound for a mission of Burma at Maxwell's. And you can imagine how that went uh, with the volume. Uh, it's like when Jay Maskus did sound for my bloody Valentine at Maxwell's. Can you imagine <laughs> that? Um, so anyway, um, we do a couple weeks and then, um, Ira turns me over to do my first show without a net. And the first show without a net is a band called Speed the Plow. Speed the Plow were an offshoot of the Feelies. So after the Feelies broke up the first time, they kind of went and did the tripes. And then when the Feelies reformed, um, John Baumgartner and Tony Baumgartner's wife kind of took the tripes and turned it into Speed the Plow. But they always shared people. So at this time... Bill Million from the Feelies was playing guitar. Um, the rock critic Jim DeRogatis was playing drums. So if you know who Jim DeRogatis is, he wrote the book about R. Kelly that basically took that man down. Um, so true hero, Jim DeRogatis. And so um, we did the, you know, and so Speed the Plow were like, you know, keyboards and woodwinds and guitars and all sorts of, you know, weird things going on. And they knew me. So they they knew who I, Bill really didn't know me, but, uh, you know, um, Certainly, uh, Jim did, and their guitar player John did, or it was Mark. I forget who's the guitar. It might have been both, actually. Um, but anyway, so they knew who I was, and um, I'm muted. No, no, no. Sorry, okay, Katie. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, so anyway, uh, this show goes well, and so your first show without a net is Speed the Plow, which are a Feelys offshoot. And about a month later, we had New Year's Eve. Um, Bob Mould band playing New Year's Eve. The drummer for Bob Mould at the time was Anton Fear, former Feely drummer. Um, and the opening band for that show was Young Woo, who were the Feelys, but with Dave Weckerman, the percussionist, coming out front rather I'm, than... I'm astounded by all the details you remember about this that long ago. I can't okay. remember the bands I worked with two weeks ago. Well, <laughs> and there's a whole lot of stuff in the Maxwell's time that I don't remember. That's part of it. And I never Fair did enough. drugs, so that's the key. I never. You should have, I should have done more drugs. I remembered this stuff. Anyway, so the reason I remember is because it was actually important to my you know, further career going on as such career you had to be kidding right um so that was when i met the full feelies thing and you know dave was singing so if you know what young woo sound like they do mostly covers a few dave songs but like they do uh, big day by phil manzanera from the um uh uh yeah one of the manzanera seller records they do um child of the moon by the rolling stones the b-side of jumping jack flash as dave would say and it was just fun so you know i got to know them i got to know them well, I mean, as well as you could at the time. And so it goes from there. And then it was like six or so years of like doing 
every band you could think of. We would, you know, Maxwell's the kind of place where one night you'd have Sun Ra's orchestra and the next night you'd have Fugazi. So, um, and it was equally at home. So, you know, trying to imagine doing Sun Ra on that tiny stage. It was one of those things where I'm sitting there working. How big was Maxwell's or how small? That's okay. The capacity was technically 210, I think. Um, the stage was about uh, 18 by 12, 12 deep. There was also this heater hanging above the stage at the back to the drummer's left. And everybody's hit their head on that Resner brand heater. Um, <laughs> I can tell you the funny story about why the heater's no longer there. If you want to hear it, I was, was going to say, I, I believe I've read uh, this story and I was going to okay. ask you about it. Here, here, okay, real quick detail. So uh, the Goo Goo Dolls used to play Maxwell's actually fairly often. Um, and they were great. Their first records on Metal Blade are great. There's no, there's no question, right? Uh, so they come in and they have this really interesting old character, Chuck, as their sound guy, who's really good. And he was just like, you know, old road dog guy. Anyway, so um, I got two Goo Goo Dolls stories, but that's for the heater from the heater is the one. Um, so the heater worked. We never turned it on, rarely. I mean, I would turn it on in the winter when I walked in the door and it was freezing back there. Uh, but we never really turned it on because once we had people in the back room, it became a sweat box. Uh, so the heater was always working. It could, it could work, which meant the pilot light was always on, right? So <laughs> think about that. So it's 210, 225 sweaty kids in the back room at Maxwell's and the band is playing and all of a sudden somebody on stage goes, gas! We smell gas! And they start choking and then they actually like, oh, run off the stage and the audience was yelling at them, get back up there and play. And um, so I run up to the stage and go, oh yeah, there is gas here. We need to get everybody out of here now. So we evacuated the room and we um, called the gas company they came and capped the line off and then the thing came out. but everybody you know, everybody was known as like the you know the Goo Goo Dolls got snuffed off the stage by the gas leak at Maxwell's <laughs> and so not too long after that the whole back room was redone and we took the heater and put it downstairs and one of the managers John Bruce said well we're going to keep it here in case the Goo Goo Dolls ever come back <laughs> but that said the Google dolls were actually really nice folks i mean there's they were great and they were easy. they knew what they were getting into so it was not like a surprise when they rolled in with case after case after case after case after case to fit on the stage you know they knew what they're getting into so that that's cool i mean you have to respect bands with more stuff than they have space for still going okay we're gonna do it and anyway that's my that's that story. So anyway, so, um, yeah, all, go ahead. all the while while you're doing this, this is what Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, and then you've got a day job during the day too. I have a day job during the day, so it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. Um, uh, occasionally Sundays, occasionally other weekdays. I remember one day coming in and John, the manager, saying, "So what are you doing Wednesday afternoon?" I'm like, oh, I don't know. Well, we have the Buzzcocks coming in. I'm like, uh, I think I'm going to be here. <laughs> Call in sick. <laughs> That's the right answer. Uh, yeah, and there's one show. Well, we're, well, can you come here at 11 in the morning? Well, who's coming in at 11 in the morning? We have Joan Jett. So I don't know why we loaded in at 11 o'clock in the morning for it. We brought in the big Rams 840, and then, you know, I did monitors from it and all this weird stuff. So, um, but yeah, I was working the day job. And so the Thursdays were the hardest because we started the shows on Thursday an hour earlier. So I guess they were nine instead of 10 or something like that. I would show up at work tired and my boss was great uh, because he knew I was doing this and he had no qualms about it and he said 
Well, I know that, you know, you're useless on Fridays because you're working at the club, but I have people here who are useless <laughs> five days a week. So, you know, as long as you're getting your stuff done, I don't care what you do. And uh, Gene is still, uh, <laughs> my whole boss is a Facebook friend. How about that? So, yeah, um, that's, and it's burning the candle at both ends because at some point that really did become untenable. And then we had, we hired other people to come in and cover some of the shows, a lot of the shows. And so, so at that point you were doing pretty much a hundred percent of the shows. Oh yeah. For like three years, I was doing hundred percent of the shows. We yeah. would do things like have, you remember the CMJ or new music seminar marathons? Mm-hmm. We had one of those where we did like 11 shows in a row. And the last of those 11 shows in a row was a band called Bewitched, was Bob Burt from Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore was a drummer. Actually, he was a singer, but he did play drums, but they had a drum machine, so the whole thing. Uh, And I remember I was completely fried. I mean, I was burnt beyond belief. So I come in, and it's like they're friends, so it's not like that is a problem. I can just, you know, they're friends, they understand. And so they're doing, we're doing a sound check and I walk up to the stage with a drum key and I start trying to toot Bob Burt's drums. And I do this for about a minute and he looks at me because they're covered with gaffer tape and all sorts, you know, and he looks at me and he's like, got this quizzical look on his face. He's like, Andy, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I honestly don't know. I'm going to go back and do my job and I will stop trying to do yours. And then we, we all know, did it. But yeah, that was, that's obviously at some point that becomes untenable and you need other people to come in. And that's when we started bringing other people in. So doing all this club work, did, did that kind of guide your day job towards working in music products or was that kind of just happenstance? Uh, kind of, well, half happenstance, um, I always had the interest in doing audio electronics. Actually, what I'm listening to right now is a studio monitor control I built myself, and there's an ADD converter I built myself just as, you know, science projects mostly. Um, um, more oh, name dropping. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's the way it works. <laughs> yeah. So, so more name dropping. Um, when I was working at the defense contractor after school, there was a desk next to mine that the person was there occasionally rarely every once in a while the phone would ring and it was his mother speaking spanish and wondering where alberto was i'm like oh okay well you know i I don't know where he is um and it turns out that he is al alonzo who was one of the partners in voce who did um the voce spin and dmi 64 digital music controller the other partner is dave amels who also did the bomb factory plugins and various stuff like that i had met dave at a show a club called the dive in new york city in like 1985 or 84 right after you know right at starting college i had a I had a notepad from the school paper called The Student. He looked at it and said, you go to Stevens. And I said, yeah. And then we started talking. So it turns out that, you know, Dave went to Stevens, graduated the year before I started. And I've known him forever. And I was like a booth bunny for Voce going to the trade shows, um, which was, you know, fun. I mean, I did, you know, it was, I'd never worked for them simply because they, you know, they were paying themselves and that's all the money had coming in because building hardware as you know ryan is expensive yeah Um, especially when it's low production quantity hardware it's expensive and so um but i got got to go to the trade shows and you know go to the loudon booth at the nam show and buy a loudon guitar for a thousand dollars in 1994 uh that was the most insane purchase right um took it home on the airplane didn't even think about it um so uh 
I saw what they were doing, doing the instruments and stuff and doing the keyboards. And that kind of led me to be interested. And so what ended up happening was I really was kind of working about getting out of the defense contractor business. Um, you know, it reaches a certain point where it's not what you want to do for whatever reason. And I was getting a getting calls from headhunters that weren't really interesting. And I got a call from a headhunter looking for someone to work for Ensonic out in Malvern, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philly. And, oh, synthesizers, musical instruments, that's very cool. And I went in and did the interview and got hired. And uh, it turns out that, uh, so that, that started in May of 1996. And I took the job, but then I had to call them and say, can I start, you know, three weeks later, because I just got this offer to do a tour with Fred Schneider from the B-52s. He has a solo record that played on by some guys from the Chicago punk rock mafia. Uh, Rick Sims uh, from the Digits, uh, Tom Zalewski from Tar. So they were like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so I started there and was working on a phrase sampler, basically a a sampler, but it had keys that you can hit with uh, your fingers like you know keyboard pads or drum pads you can touch and um that that lasted six months for reasons i won't go into um uh, nothing to do with me uh <laughs> it wasn't my fault for once um and so i got to but i got to work on something interesting i mean it was like fpga design and the fpga was going to be turned into an asic we did quick logic fpgas if you know what those are one-time programmable and so wrote a lot of earlog code, simulated the heck out of it. I've been, you know, uh, so it was a, the FPGA talked to a 68,000 or 68030 processor. And there was also the auto chip, which was in Sonic's uh, synthesis chip at the time. And it had on board their ESP uh, signal processor chip, which was basically like a bit slice. So if you have any of their effects units, the ESP and Sonic signal processor chip was in this. And there was usually four of them because it made the word wider. So if you're familiar with bit slice processors, that was basically what it was. Um, and then anyway, that ended. And I took a job back up in Hoboken, the Hoboken area, Clifton, working for another defense contractor. And then did a few shows at Maxwell's again, uh, by that time, the club had been sold to the guy who was trying to do a brewmaster thing, and he turned it into a brewery, and that the beer was no good, and they really kind of had no idea. They hired the drummer from Skid Row to be the booking agent. That was interesting. And I did, what they so they just Skid kind of Row played four nights a week. No, they didn't. That's uh, <laughs> that's likely. Yeah, um, I mean the guy was nice. I just kind of didn't really understand what we we were doing i guess because the whole metal so the, the the whole metal scene is completely different than the punk indie rock scene i got hired one a, a quick aside i got hired once to do a show with uh, a local metal band they were opening up for la guns at the big metal place called studio one in newark you know it's not around the right around the corner from the pipeline which was the punk rock place in newark which was a lot of fun but it's a big huge cavernous place and la guns had this big huge PA in it and this you know local metal band gave me money to come in and push faders for them for 25 minutes and I was like okay it's fine um, you know it's like oh, they don't tell you that oh you're doing monitors from the front of house console that was separate from their the big band's console so you know you had to do it and they didn't you know so the the guy with the monitor rig actually came up and said you need to give the monitors I'm like okay I remember. Uh, 
And that was kind of weird. But see, with the whole thing with all these metal shows where you have stacked, you know, like seven bands playing these shows, right? And they stack up all the equipment, you know, one in front of the other. So they don't want to share gear. And punk rock sharing gear was what happened all the time. You didn't have room, you know, do it if you can, right? So each band had to use their own gear, and then they pulled it all off, and it was chaos and nonsense. And it was all pay to play. So all those bands had to sell tickets to their show and if they didn't sell the tickets they had to bring the money and that's completely antithetical to the punk indie rock thing i mean it was like completely blew my mind that any band would or any band still to this day plays that game it's just wrong anyway so uh we did our show and i got paid mike a few bucks and figured oh, i'll stay and watch la guns and then their first song i was you know, by the mixed position. The second song, I was in the back of the room. And the third song, I was in my car on my way home because it was so loud. It was, jeez. <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, the aside. So anyway, um, back to the whole Punk Maxwell's thing. So a lot of the people were just, people, the regulars who were working there started quitting. It was just like not a cool scene. And um, I remember I was at home and I got a call from the club saying, can you come in? The sound guy we normally have didn't show up. Oh, okay. That's weird. And I, I know the guy, he's still a friend. I'm not going to out him. Um, uh, I understand why he did it. I don't think it was very professional or very cool, but he was making a point. Um, and so I show up and the band is something called a band called Jonathan fire eater who are at the time going to become really you know, on, on the way up. And uh, I get there and they're like, what happened? I'm like, well, uh, you know, yeah. And I said, but don't worry. You know, I used to work here all the time, blah, 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 blah. You'd be, you'd be fine. And we did a fine show. And after the show, the, uh, the manager and the booking guy said, Hey, you know, do you want to work here more often? And I really didn't, I, I really <laughs> did not. And so I just made them an offer. They absolutely could refuse, you know, gave them a number that was way high. Then that's how you get fired, by the way, without getting fired. You just make a price that's above what they can or willing that, that, that's, to pay. That's how I say no to gigs. Yeah. Make it kind of exorbitant. I, I feel like and I remember. If, if they say yes, then all right, I guess. All I'll, right, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. the money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I feel like I remember you talking about that on a boot camp episode at one point. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those things like you say no to people, you know, people stop asking you, but if you kind of make it a little bit too complicated for them or, or too expensive, they go, oh, well, you know, this dude has value, but I can't do it. It's a different way of presenting the no, you know? Yeah, exactly right. And well, it's also recognizing your worth. They really need right. you, so they will, you know, they'll either pay or they'll, they'll, do something else. Yep. Uh, so anyway, I was back up in North Jersey for another year. And then I was actually trying to get out of New Jersey anyway. So I took a job at Kitt Peak National Observatory. Um, they have an engineering, engineering and technical services group. And we were the folks who built some of the instrumentation and maintained all the, um, all the astronomy, all the cameras and the instrumentation on the, on the mountain. Uh, so I built the electronics for a four-color spectrograph. Yeah, uh, I mean by four-color, it was four infrared, four infrared image sensors, and there were filters in front of them, so you could look at four different wavelengths. Um, and very expensive. It goes into a giant doer that's the size of a washing machine. Uh, so if you're familiar with infrared astronomy, here's something fun about it. It's got to be cold. Because what is infrared? It's heat. So when you're looking for cold, when you're looking for heat, you need to make your instrumentation 
cold. And so the doers for the spectrograph and this other four-color camera, um, they're cooled with liquid helium. So if you ever got an MRI, you heard that whistle in the background? That's the liquid helium coolers. The heads Crazy. of the liquid helium coolers get to four Kelvin. So four Kelvin. That's really cold, right? Yeah. Um, and the cold finger in the sensor attachment block was attached to that with basically copper straps, which were coax cable. You strip the innards out and you have end type coax cable. You strip it out and you have a long bit of braided co copper. And then... So by the time it got from the cold heads to the um, uh, the sensor assembly, you're you're losing temperature. It's up to like about twenty twenty five Kelvin. It's still really cold, um, but you had to do that because you um, you're looking at heat. Now, what do you what happens when you have something that's very very cold? And if it's if you bring it below, you know, if you have any con moisture in the air, it all condenses on the coal when it gets below dew point. So the entire assembly was in a vacuum chamber that's about the size of a washing machine. And it takes about a week to pump down to atmospheres that are, you know, you know, what millitor or something crazy like that. So, you know, you, you really, and you have to control the temperature of the sensor. And then of course you have the sensor has actually analog outputs that have to come and go to electronics to get amplified and, and digitized. So how do you get something from 25 Kelvin to atmosphere? You know, you have wire that's got a different thermal, um, different thermal properties. So you wouldn't use copper because it's way too good a thermal conductor. So the wire we use is constantin. And so that had a higher thermal resistance and a higher electrical resistance also, but you can't win them all, right? And so that goes right through a you know glass vacuum feed through on the side of the doer out to the outside world to the digitizing electronics. And that just, it's, it's one of those challenges that you go, wow, you know, people, you have to actually do that. And that's kind of one of those, you know, you know, when you think of audio electronics, it's like, oh, that's trivial compared to this kind of stuff. I mean, really, you know, how do you get the stuff when it's cold? Um, so, um, worked there for about four and a half years. And then, you know, the time came to move on. I took a job working for a company doing compact PCI and VME backplane uh, processor boards. And there I met an interesting person called David Forbes, who is brilliant engineer. Um, he does the scope clock and the Nixie, uh, Nixie clocks. So if you ever look online for cathode corner, you'll see he's got these Nixie watches that are about the size of, you know, uh, and they have Nixie tubes in them and you look at them and they tell you the time with Nixie tubes. It's, you know, completely crazy. Nice. Um, and he was also running the local pirate radio station. And so what they would do is they put the pirate radio transmitter somewhere out in the Catalina foothills mountains and only one person knew where it was. And then they had a microwave uplink to, from the uh, radio studio, which was an RV that they would drive around. So nobody knew where the RV would be parked at any one time. And the way they did it was further, the, the DJs would pre-record their show on six-hour VHS tapes. And they'd have the VHS tape in the RV. And then it would be nobody in the RV. It would be playing the tape for you know however long the tape was and then the next DJ would come in and put the new show on and every once in a while I'd go off the air because a park ranger or somebody would stumble upon the transmitter out there in the middle of the uh, desert 
Um, so I was there for a few years, and by the time I got to Tucson, I really wasn't doing sound, but then I started to get sucked back into it, as you know how that works, and I started working at Club Congress, uh, Solar Culture, did some stuff at the Rialto Theater, and it just kind of kept on keeping on, and um, that ended when the company got bought out by a larger company and combined several other companies doing the same thing, the embedded processing stuff. And uh, they decided they didn't need six people in Tucson, so then I ended up taking the job where I am now, where I design scientific instrumentation, scientific cameras. Uh, so large CCDs. So we have cameras up on Mount Lemmon here in Arizona. Um, it's part of the Catalina Sky Survey. These are the folks looking for the asteroids that are going to turn us into Armageddon. Um, so they have up there, they have a camera that's got a CCD that is about four and a half inches by four and a half inches. And they make one on a wafer. It's eleven and a half K by eleven and a half K pixels, so hundred and twenty-one million pixels. Uh there's obviously a yield of one or none for each wafer. They are very expensive, but there's the only thing that does what that does. So that camera um oh by the way, speaking of cold, so uh CCD cameras, uh you can they have a thing called dark current, which is basically when there's no light on it, it still generates noise. And one way you can work around the noise is by getting it cold. So you put the sensor into a vacuum chamber and you <laughs> get it cold. And then, <laughs> so these these things where we are cooling them down to like minus 100 C with uh, liquid, what are they, uh, like something called a cryotiger, which is a uh, liquid, liquid night, what is it? Um, some kind of various, you know, butane, octane, nitrogen, whatever those things are. So, like compressible gas, and it gets cold, and it gets down to minus 100. And, um, you know, that's 16 output channels, and there's, you know, you're reading out very fast. And, again, you have to get the data through a vacuum feed through at crazy high speeds. And it goes into an FPGA, it gets plugged and chugged, and then gets sent off to a computer to be reassembled. Uh, so that's sort of what I do. And then, and then one more thing while we're on that job, the stuff I've been working on recently is cameras that go into one of our national labs. Uh, this is none, none of this is secret, so I can tell you. Um, but there's a <laughs> lab called the National, in, National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And if you've ever seen that Star Trek Into Darkness movie, there's a scene where there's this crazy kind of... Um, uh, Crazy kind of, uh, all these structures and stuff looks really futuristic and sci-fi, but that's actually the target chamber room of the National Ignition, National Ignition Facility. It's The idea is that you have a 20-foot sphere that's got all this instrumentation around it, and in the middle of the sphere, you have a thimble that's got deuterium in it. And here's the crazy part. There are two football field-size rooms that have lasers, and there's 192 total lasers, um, the laser beams start out as a foot in well, width, foot in area, and then those are all synchronized to like you know nanoseconds of time, and they all converge on a target sphere the size of target the size of a um, thimble, and then the idea is you turn that thing on and it fuses and you get fusion. And they've been successful at getting what they call above breakthrough, where the energy you get out is more than you put in. And they put in a lot of energy. 
So anyway, our cameras, our cameras go in that. Um, here's the fun thing, what happens with fusion. There's a lot of high-energy neutrons coming out of that target sphere. And high-energy neutrons go everywhere. So they get blocked with like doors that are six feet thick concrete. That's about the only thing that blocks them. Um, and so the cameras that go in there have to withstand that kind of radiation environment. So it's uh, rad-tolerant electronics. And, you know, part of it is the stuff does stop working after a while. And you have to test and test and test to make it work. You have to test your electronics to make sure that they can survive the blast. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting problem. Sounds crazy expensive to go through that process. Um, yeah. But, um, That's fine. and I know everybody's like, this is oh, such a left turn that folks weren't expecting when they tuned in. Right, right, right. So now back, now back to punk rock. No, it's totally fascinating, though. It's, it's really <laughs> so cool. The, so that, that's that's the electronics career. So now the you know the punk rock thing is like, hey, um, go do shows at Maxwell's, and you see every so, punk rock band. So today, though, you right. still work with a couple artists. Um, the only thing I really do now is I work for the Feelies. Um, they were friends from way back, so they would play Maxwell's fairly regularly from like 1985 through 1991 when they broke up the first time. Um, they were basically the, you know, house band at some point, I guess you can say that. Uh, they they would do two sets a night, uh, no opening band, all that. So it was a lot of, but they also did a lot of touring too. So, uh, and by the time they start, I started working at Maxwell's, their sound guy was a guy called Brendan McCabe, who was a lovely human being. He was one of those, you know, touring sound guys who was like, oh, you're the new guy. We're going to teach you how to do things. We're not going to bust your chops. And so one of the things he noticed was, hey, you have a high, you know, SM57 that's got the tape around the uh, thing to hold the cap on. Mm. He said, well, the problem with that is it's the bass port you're covering and now you've made your mic an Omni. Ah, we can put it on the high hand. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, it can be high hand. It'll be fine. Uh, anyway, so um, they would play two or three times a year at Maxwell's, mostly sometimes July 4th. You know, the whole thing about playing on the holidays was not really true, but it's a nice, nice legend. Um, and they broke up in 91. And after they broke up, um, Glenn and Dave did a band called Wake Ulu and put out a couple records. And I did a few van tours with them. You know, we go play and do things. Uh, Stanley started playing drums in Luna. And eventually I started doing some Luna shows. Um, and anyway, fast forward uh, I moved out here and then in 2008, I got an email from Stan with, uh, the headline, you know, Velvet Underground, because we've been conversing about this Velvet Underground, um, uh, bootleg that had come out and he sent me a picture of the five of them in Glenn's basement, but it was a recent picture. It wasn't like from 20 years ago mm. and I sent him and I sent Glenn an email saying, do I need to buy a plane ticket? And he <laughs> said, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it, but I just made myself there. Um, and so we, the whole thing was Sonic Youth was like, we're playing Battery Park City on July 4th, 2008. And we need an opening band. Are the Feelies still around? And calls were made. And turns out, yeah, they were still around. Um, they just hadn't been playing. And they, they were still talking. There was, you know, lots of licensing stuff always going on in the background. You know, there was always reasons to talk. Um, they were never... You know, they never, they were certainly still friends. It wasn't just, it wasn't like they hated each other. They were still great friends. And so anyway, um, one thing led to another and yeah, we're going to do the show. And so they decided that, well, we might as well just do 
some nights at Maxwell's to warm up because we haven't played together in, you know, 18 years. So we did uh, June 30th, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at Maxwell's, or June, June 1st and 2nd at Maxwell's, and then July 4th at Battery Park. And so walking into Maxwell's to do the show for them in 2008, after not being there for several years and all this, was like, it's like going home, you know? Because uh, it was a place I spent so much time and so many good memories of. And it's like, hey, nothing has changed. Well, it had changed, but, you know, there's, you know, it was basically the same. And so, so still a 12-channel Tapco and an Effectron. <laughs> <laughs> the Defectron was still there, yes. Love but it. it was, at that time, it was a GL2800. Um, after, so after the Tapco went, we put a Soundcraft 200B in there. And that Soundcraft 200B has, if that thing could talk, you know, it's one of those things that <laughs> that console could talk. Uh, that console is now in my storage space. Um, still works. Nobody wants to use it, but it's a great desk, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it's perfectly. I mean, you go, yeah, yeah, I actually was curious about how the sound system uh, evolved in Maxwell's, and, and if there was ever like a push to be to, to put something new in, or um, or if anybody was interested in that over there. <laughs> oh yeah. So when we started, it was those big. E, uh, JBL metal horns with 2445 drivers. There was Perkins bins in the mids. There was Perkins bins in the subs. Powered, underpowered by a couple of Yamaha power amps and a Defectron and a Yamaha Rev. What is that? The Rev 100 or the Rev 5? They Rev had five, four yeah. had four buttons. You push, you know, you get four different noises, right? It, didn't, it wasn't reverb. <laughs> uh, it was a two bit reverb. Um, and so it was always sort of underpowered and weird. Uh, at some point, we got these uh, dual 18 scoop bins in. I think they came from Lenny Kravitz's rehearsal space or something crazy like that. Um, so the first upgrade was the console. We replaced the Tapco with the Soundcraft, and then we put the... Um, uh, put those um, Perkins... Uh, put those uh, subs in. And at some point, when we got the Soundcraft, we also got new monitors, and it went from... Having one monitor mixed to two monitor mixes. <laughs> that frontline and drums. So they were the community carpeted speakers. Everybody knows with the piezo yeah. horns and light bulbs. Funny story about the light bulb. We're doing a Screaming Trees show. And I'm back there. They have their guy mixing. I'm back there hanging out. I got my beer in my hand. And all of a sudden, Van starts gesturing wildly. He's like, ah. And I go up there with my beer. And I'm like, oh, shit. The monitor's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> And so I look at him and I unplug it and I douse it with my beer. <laughs> and he shrugs at me and I shrug at him and then they keep rocking. And it's about as punk as you get. That was uh, what are you gonna do, right? Yeah, I'm just gonna keep playing. So yeah. Uh so there was the two community or three community monitors, and then at some point we were desperately needed to upgrade it and uh, a decision was made to put in the JBLSR boxes with the two fifteens and the two inch and the matching single 18 sub uh i would have preferred the double 18 sub but um it would have required another power amp and all this other stuff and there wasn't enough ac mains in the back room anyway for that uh that's another odd story mm. we had dinosaur junior come in i did two shows with them and the second one was uh they come in and um we do things, we get sound check, we get tones and everything. And Murph's like, okay, I'm going to count off one, two, three, four on the downbeat, hit the downbeat, and blam, the power goes out. 
And I go down to the basement to reset the circuit breakers, and they were wiggling in the air. They were done. They had oh, given God. up. It was over. Uh, so I, I called over to Studio Systems and Transport in Weehawken, who are my lifesavers more than once. Uh, they are still there. John Hanty still runs the place. Dave Myers is still there. Um, they have the Hanty Studio in the back, which... Uh, was all a different story. Uh, so they, anyway, I pick, I call them up and I say, you know, and Dave Myers answers the phone. He's like, "What do you want now?" And, he, and I'm like, "Oh, I got a power problem. My panel just blew up." And he's like, "Oh, that's interesting." Because <laughs> usually it's something like, "I need monitors or something dumb." And it's like, "Oh, this this is actually interesting." So of course, what when I did that, the entire SST crew would hop into one of the vans and come over and you know eat dinner. And so he comes in, brings in a distro, ties into the downstairs. We bring it upstairs and we do a show. And the next day, the electrician came and fixed the panel in the basement. And but that was always a problem. I mean, it was lack of AC power in the back room. We had in one of the English bands, Rider Loop, or somebody came in. They had this huge light show. And I told them it wasn't going to work. And they turned it on, and the circuit breaker blew. And I went downstairs and reset it and did it again. And then, okay. And so they were like, okay, for a sound check, they left it alone. But then during the show, they started doing the light show. And then the circuit blew, and I went downstairs and reset it and came back up. And after the third time running up and down the stairs, they finally gave up. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they wouldn't listen to the local guy who kind of knew that, you know, they couldn't do that. And they didn't advance it. But then again, nothing was ever advanced back then. <laughs> I mean, what's an advance? Oh, I think it came out of the fax machine into the shredder or something like that. I never saw an advance sheet. I never saw an input list. Um, nice. <laughs> this is how we rolled. So, uh, yeah. In regards yeah. to the way that, that the... Uh, dude, I've worked in some shanky, like just, just really weird janky spaces. Um, but you have, a, you know, your electrical engineering side that you're obviously you do a lot of have you ever like been compelled to do like weird science and on on a pa or or just want to build or invent something that people haven't seen before has that ever been something you've gotten up to uh, uh well um I, I so in terms of like going to a venue and having to fix stuff i mean we did that all the time <clears throat> and i rebuild whatever that garbage at the satiricon in portland was it's like my god what is this disaster um but uh, you you look around and you go, okay, this would be cool. And then you start thinking about how much it would cost to do it. <laughs> and uh, you go, yeah, this would be cool if we had that. And you go, okay, well, I can cost it out. It's going to cost $1,000. But something that should reasonably cost 200 You know, that's, that's kind of... So you know, Ryan's shaking his head, but if you have a stream deck, for example. I first saw the stream deck. Oh, these are little LCD buttons and stuff. This is really cool. This is not hard at all to do, right? It's really not. And then I looked up the cost of those buttons and in single quantities or maybe buying 100 of them at a time, they're $20 a piece. There's no way I can make a stream deck at home for what they sell it for, for $200. It's just, it's, it's impossible. Yeah, so e a lot of the things you... Is, is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a, a lot of the things you look at, like, I'd love to do this. Um, and you go, okay, well, what's it going to cost to do? And then you go... You know, I, I I need I need money behind me so I can make you know a thousand of them so it's possible. And then since I don't have any real in the industry anymore, not that I ever really did, uh, you know, raising money to do that stuff is it's a non-starter. And I'm not going to do a Kickstarter. You know, for example, mm -hmm. there's no. 
Uh, and so I'm trying to think of what would I have done. I thought, a friend of mine was thinking about how do you do like a cue mixer for all the RF mics you might have on a theater stage. And so I thought of something where you just had like a set of, it's not really a mixer, but more like a matrix switch where you can just like queue up individual channels just so you can hear, okay, yes, that channel is on, that channel is off. You have a little headphone app. And I worked something up like that and uh, it just got expensive. I mean, and un unless you could think of some, I mean, you know, getting circuits, okay, back then getting circuit boards made wasn't like you called JLC PCB and get them for five bucks, right? Uh, back then it was like $1,000 to get a run of circuit boards. It was just not something, not something you want to do. Um, the whole smart IO thing came about when I met them, I, I, I knew them from, uh, I guess, trade shows and everything else. And I knew Sam and all this. And, I came I, up I with this idea say, if, if I can, because I know when we were talking before, you told us a little bit of the full circle of how you first met Sam and Calvert. Do we want a quick detour sure, to yeah, that on the way back to here? Because that's kind of cool. Okay, here, here, the, okay, so yeah, so so once upon a time when I was an under, undergraduate at Stevens in Hoboken, um, I was one of the upperclassmen who was teaching the incoming freshmen over the summer how to use their new PCs because back then they were given PCXTs. 286s, I guess. And, you know, they didn't know how to use DOS or anything like that. So we had little offering, little course, you know, here's how you do DOS and all this. And so we had in the big computer lab at Stevens in the library, there's a, you know, 30 computers set up and you can see the VAX cluster in the back and you can see all the punch tapes and all the other stuff. And I remember after one of those, there was a graduate student who came in and sat down at one of the computers and started working on something. And I went over there and I looked at it and I saw something that blew my mind. He was using a program that let you type in mathematical equations as if you were writing them on a blackboard, and then it would solve them for you. And I asked him, what is that? And he said, it's MathCAD. So this is the first version of MathCAD for DOS in like 1985. And it, he was running on a five and a quarter inch floppy disks that he brought in, he put into the computer. And it was just amazing that you could have something that's a solver that you just type the equations in and it did it for you. And, you know, nowadays it's like you get in your browser, you can do that. You can do it on Google or you can do Math, MATLAB or whatever else or what you do, you know. Uh, but that was really cool. And so I said, what are you working on? He said, well, I'm doing acoustic stuff and, you know, there's an anechoic chamber in the mechanical engineering building. Have you ever seen it? I'm like, I didn't even know it existed. Uh, so he introduced himself and he said, oh, my, I'm Sam. And it was Sam Burko who later did SIA acoustics and smart and all that. And so he was just graduate student at Stevens and doing all this stuff. And uh, later on, um, <laughs> this is this is how small the world is. So one of the Feelys guitar ticks is a guy named Barry Durier. He's right now, he's out in LA. He works for, he was, I think he did Wet Leg recently, but he also works for Patti Smith. And he was on the Conan O'Brien show as the backline tech for a very long time. He moved out to LA when Conan moved out there to do the Tonight Show. Anyway, so... Barry was living in Hoboken at the time. He was our guitar tech. He was, or not, my, not at the time, he was my guitar tech. But he was working at Maxwell's, hanging out, helping things. He was on tour with all these sort of bands. And he had a roommate who he said was working on this acoustics measurement program. And I'm like, oh, who is that? His name is Calvert. It was Calvert Dayton from what became Rational Acoustics, was Barry Durier's roommate. And I'm like, you know, this is a really small world because I knew, I knew Sam was doing that. And... It you know it's it's just funny how these things sort of happen in a little city like Hoboken, so 
that's that story. And then I guess the next thing is the smart IO, right? Yeah. Yep. Sorry to derail <laughs> yeah. that, but I found that super interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I I was thinking about a way to do like um, what we do now in smart with multiple input channels and a way to switch things and a way to do have a USB audio interface with a mic preamp and the gain and all the other stuff that you need. And it needed to be a steppable gain that was controlled in a usable way. And it needed to have um, a recallable gain. That was part of the trick, but it had to be USB interface and blah, blah, blah. And so I came up with something that had four input channels and it was front panel switches to choose between the channels. And uh, it was clunky. It was too big. And then we, I went back and forth with Jamie and uh, about, you know, what do you guys actually want? And so the idea was, well, you have something programmable gain and you have something that has, you know, the remote control preamp or remote control gain. No, you don't have any knobs on the front panel. Remote control of the phantom power. You have um, a known voltage reference so that you can do... um, SPL measurement without a calibrator. So with normal preamps, you know, you have the infinitely variable control, or at least in one of these Evo things like I have here, you know, you can set the gain correctly in whatever steps. But the thing is, you don't know what the voltage reference on the A to D is. And if you don't know what the voltage reference on the A to D is, you don't know what the actual signal level coming in in volts is. And so when your microphone has a sensitivity of 14 millivolts per Pascal, whatever, it's got some reference. So you know that if you put this level into it, you'll get this voltage out. And then the voltage output goes into a preamp, gets amplified, and then it goes into A to D converter. And the thing with all the audio A to D converters is they don't really don't have a reference that's known. It's fixed. It's solid. It doesn't vary, but it's not something they published on the data sheet as like it's exactly 2.43 volts or something like that. Uh, they'll give you a scale. It could be 10% off of that. And for what you're doing in a recording, it just doesn't matter. I mean, you just turn the knob, make it a little bit louder, make it a little bit quieter. Uh, but when you're trying to actually measure something, you need to know what that number is. So the innovation I came up with, which was not very innovative, was seems like it was obvious at the time, uh, you use a standard voltage reference chip to drive the reference input on the A to D as opposed to connecting it to the power supply rails and all this. And that way we knew what the... Um, you know, this voltage in gives you that SPL when you do the math. And um, that was part of it. So the other part of it was the um, steppable gain preamp. And if you look at something like your M32, X32, now you see a series of switches and um, uh, around precision resistors. And that's basically what I did back then, which was just have an analog MUX chip and some fixed resistors. And Calvert and I went back and forth, worked out the gain law. And, you know, you have all these switches and all this, and you can get a gain step of 1 dB over a 55 dB or whatever range it was. And that worked out pretty well. Um, And the thing about it was, you know, the gain control was repeatable. You said, I want 40 dB gain. It gave you the same gain every time. And since we use precision resistors, we had the same gain on both channels. So you need the channels to be matched. Um... And that was basically what it was. Uh, and it used one of the old TI, TAS 1020B processors, which is long obsolete. And the main reason the product went away was because the A to D converter, um, <clears throat> AKM made it, and they obsoleted the version A that we used in it, and they came out with version B. 
And the problem with version B was it didn't like its reference input being overdriven by an external reference. It just didn't work. Nothing on the data sheet said that you couldn't do that, but it just <laughs> didn't work. And uh, we, I guess the, they tried to buy up all the AKM, whatever the part was in that version, and then once that part went away, that was the end of it. And then by that time, other people had come out with you know other remote control versions, but they still didn't have the SPL measurement capability that the SmartIL had, so you still had to use a calibrator. So, so this is probably going to sound like an ignorant question, but uh, there are no when you questions. have a when you have a voltage reference that goes in, um, and you know I guess there's there's voltage coming into you know this preamp. Uh, wouldn't different microphones that you use have different Pascal to voltage, you know, uh, conversion, if you will? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so, so, so how do you kind yeah. of, uh, you know, compensate for that? Well, well, you hope that the manufacturer specification is good enough. So your TR40 had, you know, 14 millivolts per Pascal. Uh, your um, MC930 has something. So you assume that, you know, these things are manufactured on a production line where the numbers are good enough. I mean, Reasonably you know, they're close, matched, yeah. right? And so, so so, when they say that it's, you know, this number, um, and that's, you know, it's a good question because are they that good? And then the only way you can really tell is to do the math and then get the result and then compare it with a calibrated meter. Um, so that's why your better mics like your Earthworks, which have, you know, real data behind them and they're all measured. You can, you know, like they can, they measure the sensitivity and they can publish it and you can enter the sensitivity into smart and say, here's what it is. Um, Got it. So you enter that value into smart and then smart then goes, cool. Now we know the reference level of the actual decibels in the air. That is this voltage. Exactly. Yes. Got it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've done that. The, if the Neutrik uh, minimalizers that do the SPL meter that come with their own mic, you can actually, I've done that where that mic died and we put an ISEMCOM on it. And ISEMCOM will, again, give you the value for your microphone if you right. type in the serial number. And yeah. yeah, you can enter that in there. And they do a similar thing because they've got their dedicated preamp circuit in it and it saves you having to use the calibrator. Yeah. And that, that's why you pay $500 for a microphone instead of 50 because they, you get you get data and you get repeatable data and you get something something that they actually know. So, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. That's awesome. Very yeah. cool. So, yeah, I mean, it, oh, no, go ahead, Andy. <laughs> oh no, no, you go. <laughs> uh, well, the electronic design background that you have, do you feel that that ever kind of you know affected the way you approach doing shows? <laughs> uh, you you guys are probably aware of the years long argument: is the person pushing the faders an engineer or not? And I will say, right. as a degreed engineer, absolutely not. And here's what I really do say: I'm part of the band. I'm not thinking about you know is this op amp going to oscillate or is this going to happen? You know, I'm thinking about my lead vocalist needs to be louder. I need to put reverb on this thing. I need to balance the mix. I need to be a mixer. I need to be a um, an artist. Now, when you're hanging the PA and you're aligning it and you're setting it all up, that's absolutely engineering. There's a lot of engineering principles that go into it. I mean, from the hanging it themselves, you know, you're hanging metal in the air above people's heads. So you use engineering principles to make sure that things don't fall down. And the same thing with setting the delays, setting all the other stuff. That's actually engineering. But when you're sitting in front of the console and you're watching the band play and you're responding to what they're doing, 
that's i i don't think that's engineering i think that's art and what i do and what you do and what andy does and what katie does for the same set of inputs in the same band could be completely different and that's our judgment and that's what makes it art absolutely i mean that's kind of what you get hired for right because someone thinks that your version of their art you know matches their vision you know that kind of thing yeah and you know you kind of as as a sound engineer you need to know what is the band's vision what do they want you know you know and then that's the hard part of being a club sound guy is that all these disparate bands come in you have the country band one day you have the sun Ra, you have the fugazi coming in and you have to know how do you make them sound like what they want especially given you have a 30 minute sound check and you don't really have time to know when the guitar solos are happening things like that you just have to ask them questions and so there's a thread on the discord about like you know hey what's in your pelican what's your most important tool in the toolkit and the answer i've given for this all the time is a big record collection you have to know what the music's going to sound like you have to be a music fan I mean, you know, I've seen so many techs who are like, you know, they're dressed in black and they got the, all the accoutrements and they got the, 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 the Gerber and the Maglite and the gaffer tape and all the other stupid stuff. And they can't mix because they have no idea what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. And, you know, you can tell that they don't listen to music for fun. You don't, they don't enjoy listening to music at all. And if you don't enjoy listening to music, you're in the wrong business. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sell merch, you can... You can hang the PA, you can do all that stuff, but you shouldn't be behind the console. Yeah, one hundred percent. What's what's funny is that what's funny yeah. is that like like twenty five years ago or so, I I also you know worked <laughs> in a two hundred seater club that had a tiny little desk and I think there was two compressors and you know two fifteen band graphic EQs, mm-hmm. and we had I don't know string cheese incident come through, Rob Zombie yeah. came through, stuff that didn't make sense, right? Right. But twenty five years ago, I just get a list. Okay, these are the artists showing up. And there wasn't a place to necessarily go online and find their music, right? It, that Absolutely didn't exist, not. right? Nope. Today, nope. you get a list. Of, okay, it's these five bands. You hop on Spotify. You can listen to their mm. their catalog and you go, I understand what they want to sound like. Or at least you understand what their records were intended to sound like. But it right. gives you so many steps ahead of of what I imagine you and, and I guess myself as well had a long time ago. Because I wasn't able to listen to it, you know? Yeah. If I had a, you know, count, I think I got maybe a half a dozen advanced CDs or records from a band saying, we want you to hear what we sound like. Uh, You know, part of what Maxwell's was, we knew what we were getting into for the most part. So, you know, if a band coming in, we'd know what they'd sound like. Uh, We can get every once in a while, there's something that, you know, you wouldn't know what they were. You know, the first time uncle Uncle Tupelo came through, well, you know, no idea what they are supposed to sound like. Um, I will tell you this, uh, I, I'm one of those sound guys who likes to get away from the console and walk out into the room and hear what the band sounds like in the room. I think if you're stuck behind the console, uh, you're doing everybody a grave disservice because what you hear and what they hear isn't the same in a lot of places. So you just have to get out there and do it. So I remember in Maxwell's, I would always go out there and, you know, look around and listen, see what things sound like. Because you don't have to be at the console the entire time. You can, most things, you don't need to be hands-on, right? You know, you don't need to be pushing faders every 30, every, you know, time. So I'd wander out in the middle of Uncle Tupelo's set and they start playing this song called Whiskey Bottle. And I stood there the entire song and I was like, oh my God, 
this is this is re- this is you know where does this come from you know what, 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 this is amazing and so after the show was over you know there's this middle band in the bill I woke up there with a twenty dollar bill and say I need a t shirt and a CD right now nice <laughs> and you know it's, that's that that's that's one of those things you know you do that because um, you recognize it but you you didn't have to mix it you know just had to let it happen. And I think that if if you're successful at it, you know, and a lot of bands can go on. Not it's not autopilot, but if they're a band playing as a band, you don't have to ride faders on everything. You don't have to be flying fingers automation. You know, um, you can do what the poets in that Springsteen song said: you sit back there and do nothing and let it all be. And then that's when the magic happens because you know it's working, right? You know it's firing on all four cylinders. And I'll tell you, I mean, uh, doing the feelies is like that happens all the time. We did the um, Velvet Underground show in 2018, so they got they got a call to do um, they got they got a call to do this um, a play a show as part of a traveling Velvet Underground museum exhibition that was going on in New York City, and. Um, they agreed to do it because they are the world's foremost Velvets band, I think. And uh, even though after Lou died, nobody called to say, hey, you guys want to contribute a track to it? You know, no, it, no, it didn't happen. Um, so they put together a set to do that show at that um, museum. That didn't happen. The room was too small. The PA wasn't going to work. So we ended up bumping it to the White Eagle Hall in Jersey City, which was booked by Maxwell's booking agent, Todd Abramson, who Todd is still our great friend and great supporter. Uh, I can't say enough about what that man's done for Hoboken in general, any rock in general. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, so we do the show at um, White Eagle Hall, 70 minutes of Velvet Underground from uh, Sunday morning to Oh Sweet Nothing. And I remember at some point just going, I'm not touching the console. I'm just listening to what they're doing. And, you know, Good rock and roll makes you feel alive. That's what Lester Bangs said a hundred years ago. And it's still true. I mean, you go, this is, you know, 800 people are watching this and they're they're doing all tomorrow's party and it's a gothic cathedral and Brenda's singing and it's about this woman who's faded and near her whole life is behind her and she's, you know, trying to figure out how to do the next thing. And it's sad beyond words, right? It's really sad, but it's catharsis. Mm -hmm. So you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, when it's happening and I can tell you another time that happened, which was when the first time, only time sunny day real estate came through Maxwell's. So, um, the first tour, they're opening for velocity girl who were great friends. And I knew nothing about sunny day, except that all the punk rock kids would come into the back room during sound check and they would genuflect. I mean, it was like, you know, you can imagine how that was. So they come up there and they do their thing. And my God. It was like, how do you, how do you do that every night? How do you bring that emotion? How do you bring? And it's not an emo band. It's that's nonsense. But this was like something real, right? And everybody knew it, and everybody felt it. And then when they were done, they were just done. And then Velocity Girl had to follow that every night on tour for six weeks. And how do you do that? I mean, that was what really cracked me up. Um, but so that's what it's what it's all about. I mean. You can talk about technology. You can talk about which compressor to use and bus, you know, parallel, all this nonsense. But at the end of the day, you have five people on stage and they're making noise with drums and wires, right? And they're, 
trying to convey emotion to the people and your job as the mixer is to bring that out in the way they want and not put your stamp on it. I don't think, I don't think, I think, you know, I try to be responsive to what they're doing. Uh, when, when I do something, Bill, Bill Million, uh, he, he hears everything. He tells me, okay, don't do that again. You know, that's happened. And I'm like, oh, don't do that again. Um, or, you know, that's cool, do this. And he's got some specific stuff that he wants me to do, but it's all about presenting them as they are and as they want to be. And that even goes to things like the light show we have on our rider input list nonsense thing. You know, no hazers, lasers, phasers, masers, tasers, whatever. Uh, and the point is I have to give a lecture to the lighting people you know, here's, we're not like every other band. Please respect this, but we don't want any moving, flashing distractions. You know, slow washes are great. Um, please, no dancing lights. And if you turn on, the, turn on the hazer, they will call you out. Don't do that. <laughs> and I remember seeing a Fugazi show where Ian actually called out the lighting guy. Mr. Lighting guy, please don't do that. It's <laughs> bad. Um, and the whole, the whole point is that they find it a distraction. So let's just not do that. And, you know, I understand lighting people want to do things during the show. They don't like to sit on their hands. And so, uh, you know, it's like, well, you know, please, this is, this is how we present our show. So just let them do it. And, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about putting your stamp on it because that's not our job. Our job is to do what they want. As Ian Faith, the manager of Spinal Tap said, you know, my job is to do that as requested of me by the creative element within the band. And if you remember that, then you're, I think you can be successful. It's, I think the, one of the first steps is learning what and how to do, but then the second more important step is learning when not to. When not to, yeah. I mean, you know, the, some bands won't tell you what they're doing. Some bands tell you everything you want to know. And it's up to you to intuit what happens in between. And, yeah. I don't know how anybody else does it. Um, I just do it what feels right. And, and again, that comes from knowing what they want to sound like. You know, and when you're faced with a band you've never heard of, but you know their genre, you can go, okay, yeah, I can, I can kind of get that. And, and so when you work at the club, you've got a lot of t-shirts by bands, right? Yeah. But there's a secret. When you wear those t-shirts to the shows, that tells the bands that um, they know you're on their team. They know you know what they're supposed to sound like. So if you wear a Jesus Lizard t-shirt to a show that's by some bands, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're cool. And it's, it's, it's makes life so much easier. You know, it really, it really does. Yeah. That's awesome. But yeah, those, those moments where the entire crowd is all feeling the same thing. That's that, that's where you win. That's, that's what you that's, do it for. Right. That, 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 that is why we do this. There is nothing, there's nothing more important than that emotion. You know, you bring it out. Let's let the people hear it. Yeah. Well, hell man, that yeah. was a journey. I can continue forever. I'm not going to write a book, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I was just say, well, you don't have a book to to pitch. Before we wrap up, I know there's a new Feelies record coming out that I think you had some involvement in. Yeah, so that was the Velvet Underground show we recorded at uh, the White Eagle Hall in 2018. Uh, I did front of house mix. Um, we brought in a splitter. Uh, White Eagle Hall has a split, so you can just patch into it. And we brought in a little Mackie DL32R to record it. My friend Scott Anthony was there recording. He pushed the buttons, 
and then he took it back to his studio and uh, mixed it and did all the mastering. He's got an Ausberger uh, tune studio in his basement that's pretty dynamite. So uh, that's coming out October 13th. Nice. Awesome. Barnon Records, and double record, buy it now. Buy two. <laughs> Give them to your friends. Great. We're definitely going to put that link in the show notes so that everyone can can go buy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is kind of a... Uh, I don't know. Never had anything like this before. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. I guess we're going to wrap up. Uh, uh, any, la- I mean, there's been lots of little tidbits, like in with all the stories, there's been lots of gold of advice in there. Is there, is there one more, one more tip or if, if you could go back in time and give, give Andy Peters at, at those early days at Maxwell's a tip uh, from, from future Andy, what would it be? The, the, the tip from future Andy would be to not be so, hyperactive <laughs> some people may remember me from maxwell's where something would happen on stage and i would jump over the soundboard over the booth onto the floor to get up to the stage and that was pretty stupid <laughs> but um the, no the other thing was you know just enjoy it i mean and here, here's the thing you guys when it becomes a job and you start to reflect and your attitude about how you don't like what you're doing or you wish it was bad. First of all, nobody else can see that. There was a sign at Maxwell's on the uh, ice machine that says, leave it at home. Don't bring it here because, you know, we were doing a job. We're serving the public, right? That was for the restaurant staff, but that was also for the back room staff. We were doing sound. Um, Don't let them see you. Don't let them break you. Don't let them goad you. And when it becomes when it becomes a problem and you can't handle it and you think that you're going to lose it, you lose your stuff in front of the, the band or whatever, step back. I mean, find someone to cover the shows, go on vacation, do something, but you know, don't, don't ruin it for everyone else. And if they're trying to ruin it for you, you know, Hey man, you be the better man. You know, there's artists who will just like try to, you know, berate you or do whatever they got to do from the stage. You know, Hey, what they're going to be getting in the van. They're going to go on there somewhere down the road tomorrow. And, you're going to still be here. And so don't let, don't, don't let them get you, you know, it's, it's not worth it. You know, enjoy it. I think that's great advice. Yeah. I, I don't know what I can say to finish that up. So I feel like we should wrap it there. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for asking Andy. It's a, a pleasure. And hopefully some of you guys can come to the show in Philly or whatever. <laughs> Absolute yeah, pleasure to hear the stories, man. Yeah. yeah, and thanks, Ryan, for joining us to, to help uh, host this one. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we hope you'll tune in for the next one and the one after that and after that. And after that. And after, after that. that. Yeah. Cool. You'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends. And next thing you know, I have 16 friends, right? That's, uh, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> cool. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to Signal to Noise on the ProSound podcast of Pro, Pro Sound Web, Web Podcast, Podcast Network. Network. <laughs> we'll catch you on the it's next one. It's a tongue twister. It, it is. And, <laughs> and, and as I said last week, if all else fails, just remember, up is louder. Up is louder. <laughs> 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 <laughs>